So, we're back talking about how to do nothing, which we gave an overview in part one, but there's plenty of things we didn't get to, and this it's not the longest book in the world, but it is pretty, it's pretty it's dense. Pretty- yeah, so going over everything in it is it's not really realistic, but there are some things that we didn't cover that I think are worth are worth covering this time. So a big theme of the book, she has an entire chapter that's called, I think it's called something like making space for thought or regaining space for thought. Yeah, sort of the idea that we've lost this space, restoring the grounds for thought. And there we go. So it's like we, we can't think like we ideally would because there's so many things that are making claims on our attention at a level that we can't keep up with. And so we look at things on, and social media really is the signal example of this, because on social media, for example, on Twitter and Facebook and TikTok, even to a greater degree than that, you're immersed in these streams where you're just seeing things one after the other. You really don't have any idea who was behind them or even why they're showing up to you. And you're just seeing them one after the other, and they might be totally different from each other. And what's going on, she talks a lot about context. You you hear this a lot, like, what's the context for saying that? Or my remarks were taken out of context is always my favorite thing that people say on social media in a way. Because if somebody is reading you saying something was taken out of context on social media. It's, I mean, like the person layers of context that we're missing here. (laughs) It's like the person who is consuming social media has probably already just been numb to not having context to begin with. So you're out of context for not having context. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And it's, so it's like, she says something on, she talks about different types of context. So like she, on page 158, she gives this whole, this list of bullet points of things that recently came across her Twitter feed. And it's, it's pretty hilarious. It's also, it's grim in another way, but like she sees like a fire erupting in the Santa Ana mountains, but also she sees that the share zone is selling new t-shirts <laughs> and then an Apple ad for music lab starring Florence Welch, something wishing happy birthday to former NASA worker, Catherine Johnson, photos of Yogi Bear mascot statues dumped in a forest. So that's, so there, there's this, it's like you, you've gone through all of this and she talks about how consuming the stream there's really no spatial or temporal context so in terms of spatial that's that really applies i think to almost anything that's predominantly online because really there's no distinct space that is associated with being online so you can basically be online anywhere it's not you have the context that goes with Say you go to the gym, the gym has its own sort of context of how people act there, you know, what you do there. So you go in there, your mind goes into a different mode because you're in a different spatial context. Whereas if you're at home, that's another one. If you're at work or if you're at school, I mean, like if you're on a digital platform, there's really what's I think is called context collapse because you're getting all these things from all these places, but they're coming to you from one source and that source is nebulous and... It's mostly just something that you're fleshing out in your mind. You don't have any sort of physical presence to anchor you to that content or to give you any sort of context. And temporal is also 
about ordering things in a sequence. So if you if you're if you go out into the real world and you're like I have to get I have to get downtown. There's a pretty clear sequence of events that has to take place there. You have to leave the house. You have to walk either to your car or to like a train station. Then you have to go to the road and you have to park or get off somewhere. And so it's a very it's a very simple example. But then on with like social media with like algorithmic timelines, which as we talked about in part one, they often don't serve you things that in they don't even serve you in chronological order. So you you actually might see them in there's something from three hours ago is showing up ahead of something that was tweeted two minutes ago. And it's because of some an algorithm that's ranked it, and they think that maybe this thing you haven't seen from a long time ago might actually be something that you'll engage with more than something that you that had just been posted. And you're not every social media social network works this way, but it's often not even in their in in their interest of capturing your attention. It's not even in their interest to to give you the right temporal context because I know we talked about how on LinkedIn, sometimes you'll get notifications on LinkedIn that are asynchronous, like they, they won't come in all at once, like you might get one and then you'll browse around and you'll get another one, even though you, it didn't happen that moment, it actually happened a while ago, but they sent it on a different schedule just so you would say, oh, hey, I have another red badge in my doc, so let me let me click on that to clear that away. It teaches you yeah. that, like, it, it feels like sometimes these algorithms and these platforms are creating the context for you or an artificial yeah. artificial context because the they are saying like this thing you have shown the algorithm that you would think that this thing is more interesting than the thing that yeah. was just posted three minutes ago which i find interesting because like that's not how it used to be like you used to be able to get to the bottom of your facebook feed <laughs> yeah, yeah. Facebook didn't, and to even sound really even older here, it used to be there wasn't even a Facebook feed at all. So when you logged in in Facebook, let's say it's the fall of 2004 and you're logging into Facebook, the first thing you, when you log in, the first place you go to is your profile page. And then from there, you can search for other people or you can enter different data. What classes am I taking? What music do I like? those terms then become hyperlinked. And if you click on them, they lead you to a list of everybody within a certain, you can filter it like within your school or within multiple schools who have that same thing in their profile. So that was the big way to discover things back then. And the news feed got added, I want to say in 2006 or something. So then it became this, but even then it was weird because people were really freaked out about it at first because you would see all these updates from people and they thought it was creepy, and you say it was at, is at this diner eating, you know, eating lunch or something. And but then it was, as, as far as I remember, it was chronological. So like you would see the most recent things first, and so you could. And it's not quite as good as being in the physical world or anything. You could stitch together some temporal context there by going all the way back and then working your way back to the top. And uh, Twitter used to work that way originally, before they started doing algorithmic timelines, and so did Instagram. And the, I mean, but now yeah, Twitter doesn't work like that at all. You can make it where it's like you see the tweets only of the accounts. Yeah. But there's a tab called for you, which is their preferred one. And even when you're trying to see the ones in order, it still feels like you miss some. And I just don't really trust it to deliver, to deliver the right order. The only platform I can think of right now, at least where 
you could probably consume everything in the exact order it appeared with 100% confidence is for the one what Odell talks about as well near the end is Mastodon because on Mastodon, there is no, there are no algorithmic feeds. It's all, here's the post in the order that they came onto your server. And, and some Mastodon clients even lets you do things where you can read it on a, on a Mac and then you switch to your phone, the same, the app by the same developer, just for a different platform. And it picks up at the exact position you left off on the Mac. So it like uses like an iCloud, some kind of syncing in iCloud to, to get the exact positions. But anyway, it's uh, one thing she talks about with, she talks about on page 159, she does talk about context collapse, which is, a, that's a pretty widely used term. So I know that I think she, she links it to Vox, which is, Vox is interesting from my career to content mill. Vox really came in right when I was starting. I think they were founded in around 2014 or somewhere around there. And they do, they're a very optimized site for, it seems like that era. And even now, like they still seem, now it seems a little dated because they've been using the same approach for a while. They used to always have things like the, the debt ceiling comma explained. That was always one of their big formats was like such and such explained. And so they were really a pioneer in what I would call explainer journalism. And so with this, you do have them explaining context collapse. I mean, it is a useful content concept to explain though. And to what she says on this page is that to tweet was to throw a message into a void that could include close friends, family, potential employers, and as recent events have shown us, sworn enemies. Marwick and Boyd, and that's two of the authors she's talked about, describe how context collapse creates a, quote, lowest common denominator philosophy of sharing that limits users to topics that are safe for all possible readers. And then she also she says that the Twitter users had had the most successful ones, like the ones who had just tens of thousands of followers, maybe more than that, and they would get just tons of likes and re- retweets on every tweet. They didn't exactly know who their audience was because, like, they would... And I've seen this myself on a smaller scale where sometimes you'll post something and someone will pick it up and it'll just get amplified endlessly and then you're wondering who are these people that are boosting it i definitely didn't even know who they were when i wrote it so i had no idea that they were going to amplify it and so you get this weird feedback loop where you're making things where you don't know who they're for exactly and you're just hoping that they catch on and you know you become i think as your audience gets bigger you also become more self-conscious in what you post not everybody does but some people do and because like she said in this page there's so many different audiences out there and and so you don't want to post something and all of a sudden some future employer sees it and then you're off their list forever and but this is often even though she's framing this in the context of social media i think it it very much applies to like seo like content mill writing as well because oh totally i know that i used to go i would like when we were at this content mill we always got new clients all the time. So one week you'd get, hey, there's this new SaaS analytics company that just bought 10,000 units of, of content or whatever. Yeah, our favorite. They bought this, yeah, for context here, we're talking about companies that would come in having bought literally tens of thousands of words that had to be churned out within a certain amount of times. You know, even before you start, it's just going to be, it's going to be, as Steve Jobs once said when describing, I think, the Blu-ray format, you just know it's going to be a bag of hurt. <laughs> if um, I like, have ever heard something that could describe that job better, I will know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, I always love that saying because it sounds off somehow, but also it's so vividly descriptive. 
<laughs> like, yeah. I think he was talking about like how at that time, like if you were trying to like license Blu-ray technology for like, a disk drive or a laptop, it was so complicated because there was like so many patent holders and everything. But anyway, incredible. It, um, I, but yeah, it's such a visceral it, image. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It is a visceral image. And so it's, but I'm just thinking with SEO, you're definitely going for what they have here where this context collapse where you actually don't even, a lot of times, like, I had no idea who I was even writing. I mean, but even if someone told me who I was writing for, I didn't know the types of people they're referring to, like, what they were like in real life or what they'd be interested in. And no matter how much research I would do, it's just, I don't know what a cloud administrator is doing day to day. I don't know what their personality is. I don't know what kind of reading capacity they have. Mm -hmm. I don't know what references I could get away with or what kind of language they would like. And if I, and so you'd be, you would have, yep. and so then you had to fall back on what's the safest possible thing I can write. And then, so then you would often, you'd try to find other things out there that were in this literally, you almost felt bad for the clients in a way, because it's like, they give you all this stuff and then. And the main way you often tried to write their articles is you'd go into Google and type in the keywords and see what the, see what was out there already, and then try to like recycle that a little bit. And yeah, um, it led to a lot of. It was really hard to come up with unique content because oh, you yeah. had to take a huge risk if you were going to come up with something creative or unique because you don't you just didn't know the way we worked. We were writing so much every day, so much garbage. And th this was part of, <laughs> this was part of what we were quote unquote supposed to be doing, right? Is taking all of the clients factors into account, who they are, yeah. what their audience is, what blah, blah, blah. It was almost, yeah. it was almost a formality that we always ask these questions. Of, okay. So who is this? Who is your audience? And the answer was always small businesses who need a SaaS solution. <laughs> okay. Are, yeah. But who are they? Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, small businesses. And I, yeah, I mean, are small businesses reading like 800 word articles all the also, time? Also, what I'm is like, a small business? Is this, is, yeah, what is a small is business? Is a small yeah. business on the internet or is it the person who owns the small business on the internet? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And it's weird too, because you think of all the things that might qualify as a small business, like a car dealership probably qualifies as, as oh a small gosh, business, yeah. e even though it's turning over millions of, in revenue every year. Right. <laughs> so you think mom and pop shop, but really that's not it, right? That's, there yeah, is such a one, range. One, one time we had some big thing where... We, were, we had a sort of a bifurcated audience between enterprises and service providers. And this was an issue because service providers, a generic term that a lot of people use to mean whatever they, mm -hmm. but in this context, it meant a very specific thing. It meant like a cell phone carrier, basically. And like the service provider had a very different type of content they were supposed to get than like the enterprise was. But then even at the same time, you, I mean, if you really want to start mincing words, like, a service provider is an enterprise too. <laughs> it's like the square rectangle thing where not every enterprise is a service provider, but every service provider is an enterprise. Right. But then, I don't know, it got into some real, got into some weird territory there. And and also it was another thing with the, these words was you're always looking for different types of terms to refer to the same thing because for some reason we were always advised not to repeat ourselves too much. I think this is a relic of like old SEO best practices versus Google would ding you if it's all a lot of the same word in succession because it would think it was some kind of spam. And but yeah, at the same time, it's you were run. You, so you would always get like the classic organizations, companies, businesses, 
farms. And then once you got into really the outer reaches, you, you'd start reaching for things, service providers <laughs> or or entities is way out there, I guess. That's too generic even for SEO content mill for me. Oh, man. Uh, I think I use the term entities more than anything because it's so yeah. rough. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, that's like George W. Bush one time was asked something about what is tribal sovereignty mean oh my gosh. or something. And he says something like these, they've been recognized as sovereign and they're treated as sovereign entities. And it keeps going on. Yeah, repeating. so that's, it's uh, like a that's so- sovereignty. circular thing and because, yeah. It, I literally watched that a, video the other week and I... <laughs> yeah, it's, it says that so- it, that's what it is. It's sovereign and it's sovereign also cracked me up for some reason too because... The person that phrased the question, was it like a plural subject? What does tribal sovereignty mean to like these tribes? And he says, it's sovereign, which is mm-hmm. like kind of a, a non sequitur. But, uh, but yeah, it's so like with this turning out of the content to, so you had to create it like low, lowest common denominator. You didn't really want to offend anybody, but then you tried to be safe. And then of course, some clients that would just, it would just skate right over them. They wouldn't care what it was like because they didn't really know any, they didn't know what they wanted exactly. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really know any better. Some of them would think it was too generic. So then you would think, of course, you didn't really have any way to know that going in a lot of time because A, you didn't know them in real life. And then B, the writing style that you could make where you would, it would be not only highly visible in search, but also very original and with their voices it's really difficult to strike especially with the especially with the amount that you were creating so then you you just couldn't possibly give everything the time that it would need and uh, so like it and they do actually talk about this in the book so on on page 164 she talks about how instantaneous communication threatens visibility and comprehension because it creates an information overload whose pace is impossible to keep up with i feel like with information overload that a lot of people are in denial about this. They think that no, that no, they're like, no, I can consume everything. Everything is available to me and I'm fine with that. But then I just, and, but then of course this gets into some weird territory too, because people will say, they'll use start using weird metaphors. Like the brain doesn't have enough storage space to keep up with all this. And of course this is one of my like pet peeves because the whole idea of the brain as computer is really flawed. And that's probably for another episode but the brain doesn't have storage space it doesn't have encryption it doesn't have decryption it doesn't try and retrieve things from memory it's not a digital system at all but uh, anyway that said that doesn't mean that information overload which is itself a even though it doesn't really that's not really a term that's particular to to information technology overload but you know it often does come out across in that context i think but so people, I think they are, some people are in denial that, you know, overload is a thing because like I said, like they'll end up with these like vast libraries of music and media and there's just no way to ever even, where do you even start? It's like you, you build this enormous library and you're like, do I start with this? If I start with this, then, oh, maybe I'm missing out on this. So there's this fear of missing out, which is very much a part of this attention economy because there's always something that's trying to grab you away from whatever you're engaging with. So the over the overload really is the information overload is an essential part of the attention economy because it really creates anxiety. It creates this thought that there's a there's something else out there that's probably better than whatever you're doing and it, you can instantaneously go and get it. And uh, but, but at the same time you don't know what yeah. it is and you don't know where it is, so you can't find it, so you can't and it's <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very anxiety inducing. 
and then it doesn't let, let you, it doesn't give you space to engage with things at more length. They actually, she quotes someone who says that activists have to adapt to the pace of information and constantly produce content. And then the o- overload is, it's, it, I think this is a good way to think of it. It's really a form of censorship, which is ex- the exact opposite of how people would probably think of it. People who are like, oh, the open web is great. There's all this digital content out there and blah, 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 blah. When you have so much stuff out there, it's just impossible for a lot. A lot of it just never gets seen at all. It just it doesn't. There's no. Um, if use a computing metaphor, there's no bandwidth for it, right. even though it's there. Nobody has. It's just not getting surfaced. The quote that she gives from a Spanish ecological group is that, "quote Everybody says that there's no censorship on the internet, or at least only in part, but that is not true. Online censorship is applied to the excess of." banal content that distracts people from serious or collective issues. I, mean, I have that section start in my notes and yeah. I underlined banal <laughs> content and I put TikTok yeah. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> There's it's true though. It's it actually reminds me of a digital version of I think the CIA or one of the American intelligence or maybe its predecessor, the OSS, had some kind of manual that it gave to like agents for how to like disrupt various communist meetings like back in i think the 40s or the 50s mm-hmm. and so they had different tactics for doing it and one of them was to keep bringing up like irrelevant things <laughs> and trying or bureaucratic annoyances and trying to get people to spend time on that basically a form of filibustering yeah so and when there's so much stuff right there's there's like you're saying there is this information overload and it seems mm-hmm. like there it, it seems like disincongruous right because we're saying the whole internet is, and there's everything on there. And there's no censorship, but really you have to sift through the cruft and sifting through yeah. the cruft is like just, and really, yeah, yeah it's painful. And, and painful, also yeah. it's, it becomes, it, it's also, it's often, it's even become impractical mm. in some ways. Cause the way you would normally do that is through a search engine. And of course, as we know, search engines are just overflowing with all kinds of garbage people like us in past lives <laughs> whoops we, um, sorry yeah yeah it's that's this is overflowing with that and then as we discussed in one of those episodes i think it was about algorithm algorithmic behaviors or like how when you start using the algorithm you think that oh hey i'm in control i'm telling it this and it's giving me what i want but then after a while you search google or what or i don't want to say all search engines because not all search engines work the same way but google being so dominant is the example i would keep going to but and you're like i can't find this so maybe i need to just adjust my behavior a little bit and so actually instead of being in control you're remaking yourself to be more amenable to the algorithm so you're in a way you're becoming you're trying to behave like the algorithm behave like you're trying to think how would it sort this even though it makes sense to me to describe it this way this computer is too dumb to understand it in the same way and but then Another thing to think about sifting through all this craft is that even if you were to do it, what would be the, you really have to do it in small doses because if you do, if you absorb all this stuff and look at the end result of these different like chat bots who have quote unquote read the entire internet, you're like chat GPT three and four. Oh yeah. Like their answers a lot of times are surprisingly bad considering the amount of information they've been exposed to. So I think somebody on Twitter was going crazy saying, oh, wow, the, this chatbot passed the SAT. And then 
I think my response to me like, yeah, if I was taking the SAT and I had a computer with the internet next to me, I could You're probably, probably also pass get every SAT. single question yeah. and I wouldn't even have to read the whole internet before I did that. Uh, so I mean, so it's like I could do it with literally a tiny fraction of the same information and I could probably, so I was like, that's a very weird example, but I think it's also a cautionary tale about how you don't necessarily have to consume everything, but there is always this feeling that you need to strive for there's that and more and more there's more yeah. and more and it's a balancing act because the one and on the one hand you, you want to be like i don't want to close myself off to all this stuff that's out there but then at the same time you're like every moment i spend trying to find something else is another moment i can't stand with something that i already like for sure and so i think a lot of that <clears throat> a lot of the books passages especially on the bird watching and the going out to nature i think align with that argument because these are things that she knows give her help with her state of mind and her perspective whereas if she's just scrolling twitter maybe yeah she might come across some things that are different that she's never seen before i know i have lots of things on twitter that i would have never found any other way but then in a way some of them i regret having found them because it's like they caused stress or worry that i could have avoided so one other thing i was going to talk about context was actually going back to the brief thing that I had said about David Foster Wallace in part one, like how, so she actually does mention him in this book. And I think it's an ironic example because, so she mentions This Is Water, which is, it might actually be the most widely read of all of his works because it's very, like we said, it's very short. Uh, I think it actually exists in, a, in an edition that has like maybe, I want to say like one sentence on every page or something. Like it's spaced out to like a to like book length because every page only has one sentence mm -hmm. in it. And so it's a text of a commencement speech. And there's actually audio of the speech available online as well. And as she says in the book, it's a, she frames it as being like, it's a speech about how you have to be aware of your surroundings, what's going on. Maybe these things that seem so bad to you are actually just things that, well, backtrack a second. It's something like you might see, like in this speech, you talk about how he goes through a supermarket and it seems like a, a tedious experience for him, but then he maybe has to get outside of his own head and, and, and be aware of the larger context in which he exists. So it's, it's, it's an interesting speech, but like I said in part, but I think it's, it's interesting as an example in this book, because there actually is some context missing <laughs> about that speech. <laughs> And yeah, I did talk about how it came from a somewhat profane passage in Infinite Jest where a fish is asking other fish how the water is. And those fish are like, what the fuck is water? Because they've never even thought about right. it because it's, they're there all the time. The speech is along the similar lines as you're trying to think beyond whatever your immediate circumstances are. What are what things are you not noticing? Because the fact that fish would never notice water, of course, but then maybe the, a human by being too distracted or consumed with one thing is just not noticing all of this context around them but then but so the fact that it comes from that novel and the fact that he was a very depressed person and then that he was writing in not in the novel it comes from is all is also a very technology obsessed document it's all about in the future like there's like people are using this sort of entertainment system that's like netflix in a way where you're choosing different things from a library like on demand and it's so addictive that it literally kills you. So there, so the fact that, and so the fact that it comes from that book and to me, and the fact that we know the author's personality and the fact that he killed himself, it makes the speech seem a lot 
darker to me somehow. And it seems maybe less universal, I would say, because it's here's the the great life lesson of being completely in the down in the dumps while you're doing everyday shopping for food. I don't know how if that's like something everyone would experience or if it's just something that would have particular weight for someone who was a deep depressive. And and then you think about like how and the fact that he the infinite jest itself was very concerned with technological addiction but not really i would say not really in a satirical way i read the book i didn't really it does not scan as satire at all to me it just it scans as a kitchen sink of of different of kind of humor and also bleak observation i wouldn't say he was he was showing any contempt for that for uh technology of any kind and and like us and part of that i just thought of like how he's often compared to thomas pynchon who's actually still alive, the sort of reclusive novelist who wrote Gravity's Rainbow and um, Inherent Vice. And yeah, he's in his 80s. He, every time you look at one of his photos, it's some it's like his high school graduation picture from like 1953 <laughs> or something. But he, he also had this sort of obsession with technology, maybe not as an addictive thing like Wallace did in Infinite Jest, but in, of course, he... he Gravity's Rainbow has some stuff about the nuclear era, but then or, or rocketry, but then like Inherent Vice, which takes place in 1970, one of the characters uses is using ARPANET all the time, which sadly was not in the movie. They adapted that for a movie. That was one of the parts they cut. But I think looking at him as a looking at Wallace in the context of being an author who was part of a group of authors who were all mindful of technological innovation and who were somewhat I don't know. If, Pension. I don't really know anything about Pension's personality because he's such a recluse. But at least in Wallace's case, very emotionally dark. And so that context, I think, it puts a very different spin on on the use of that of the speech as an example in this novel. Even though I think on the surface it still works for her argument because there is something there about how well you've never even thought about your surroundings because you're so distracted with all these other things. At the same time, how credible is that advice considering the source? Yeah, I wondered about that. Just. Like you said, considering the source, but yeah. she the passages of that speech that she talks about on the surface definitely are in service to her argument, right? Yeah, it's people sometimes talk about how something has become yassified. <laughs> uh, like why I think a photo and you put it through a filter and it looks like it's really happy. But to, to use this is not exactly yassification, but uh, there's some kind of SEOification or maybe yassification is the right word of that speech because I don't know if he ever is actually a pretty good example of how something was thrown out there and then it found this enormous audience, even though it maybe was not meaning to, because it is a common a lower common denominator thing. Cause imagine he gave like the fish anecdote from infinite jest, like as he originally gave it, probably everybody would have forgotten about it pretty quickly. Cause infinite jest is a book that basically no one has ever read. <laughs> so I know nobody ever read it because it has a lot of it had a lot of stuff in there about my home state and my college alma mater, which no one had mentioned at all to me because they they didn't know it either. <laughs> um, but there's like even a, there's a pivotal passage near the end where it's about an Ivy League sports thing, and there's a but it, and it was just uncanny, like how I like I do all these references, and I'm like, God, how many people have ever been in this position? Near the end of Infinite Jest, reading all this stuff and saying, "Yeah, I know exactly where that is." Um, and then, but anyway, it was, I wonder uh, if it's taught in college English classes at all because I, I, I hadn't that, that, even heard of it until graduate school. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I think there is somebody on Twitter who said that he had 
taught, I think he taught, teaches somewhere in Wisconsin. He teaches a whole, like a whole course on that. Where that's the only book they like read. Like one of those. Which, that, yeah, they do that with Joyce yeah. a lot. Because really, if you did a course on it, it would probably be the only book you could read because it is so long and it's so dense. I couldn't imagine. Could this be like, a four-year program? <laughs> I mean, just get a degree in, in this one book. Yeah. yeah. I got a paperback copy of it from like 2002 and it's become quite yellow. But uh, and the yeah, the original hardback came out in 96. And uh, I think I found out about it through some kind of blog that I was reading back in the early 2000s, which I had found through a Google search, which today I would never find that blog that way because oh it's God. so obscure and it does not optimize at all. It was somehow I found it and the author had written a post in the style of Wallace and with all these foot, like a section of footnotes that was longer than the article itself. And, but anyway, so I think, it's, um, I think every sentence that you just said was an artifact of the internet <laughs> from yeah. how it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's how it used to be, because you think about that discovery process, that would really not be possible now because I was looking for something else. I was looking for some kind of something about an album and this website had something about this album, but then I clicked through to the rest of the website and had something about Wallace. And then I just, that discovery chain would definitely not, I just don't think I could find that type of thing on purely through Google. Now I would have to, it'd have to be mediated by something else. Like it'd have to go through Twitter or Mastodon or some RSS blog that I subscribed to from years ago. So the discovery thing with Google is just not there. And I think the information overload that Odell talks about, I think, is a big part of that. And I think the other thing about what was it in that same first section where it's just going through context collapse and and social media and so on, I think there's something here about you have, well, with context collapse, you have, of course, you know, there's always a risk that there'll be some kind of, some kind of pile on or somebody will hate it. I think she says it like, uh, yeah, the waves of, hating, shaming, and vindictive public opinion that roll unchecked through platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's totally right. And a lot of times, I think that anger comes from, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for, you could say why people are always so angry online. And part of it is that they can get away with it. They're not face to face, so they can just say it and then dash off into the sunset. <laughs> but then the other thing too, is also a lot of times the context is missing. So I remember many years ago, and this is something much tamer, where someone had said that like, they never knew what the tone of an email was. And uh, like they read an email and they would, they didn't know if it was like trying to be mocking or if it was trying to be like sincere. And, uh, and this was in the days when email was still a novelty and it's really weird to go back and people used to rave about how great email was, which makes me think now you know, about this, like these chat bots, once they're like industrialized, people won't think of them the same way. Cause like now who would ever like wax poetic about how great email Ugh, is? It's just, the opposite. Uh, but yeah, so they're like, what's the tone of this email? I, I don't know if it's meant to be. Yeah, I could read it in different voices and it would still make sense. And and I remember a tweet that I saw years ago too saying that the white collar communication mediums email, the one of the things that really characterizes them is that they're very insincere. So like people will overly I don't know, like happy salutations and things they would never say to you in real life. And or they would do things that that they would never consider saying to your face. And but anyway, I do think that the fact that there's a there's there is this lack of context that people might, sometimes they might actually just, they just might not know what you were trying to say and they might react with anger for that reason because they thought you were making some kind of slight that was not really meant to be a slight. But the fact that there's no context and you, that's what you're signing up for is this context-free environment. Mm-hmm. So these pile lines where people like, they'll come and dogpile people. So I think that, and funnily enough, dogpile was also the name of a very early search engine too, I think pre-Google. <laughs> And but now it's become 
it's come become very different. And of course, anger is valorized online to him. She even talked about that on page 163, where she says, apologizing and changing our minds online is so often framed as weakness. We either hold our tongues or risk ridicule. And then, so with, uh, I think it was in the No, year, it is uh, interesting. Like that kind of goes back to where we just, talked about how our, all of our interactions online are generalized nowadays, right? So uh, all of our posts and things like, are or at least she says this at one point the like uh, a generic audience right therefore yeah. just whoever's online and so by by saying like you're saying that the to apologize on the internet is seen as weakness and is seen as something that that kind of yeah is like a negative a, a negative thing yeah. in your image if you make generic enough posts, you'll never have to apologize. For never have to apologize. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because in, in writing for the content mill, you often did end up in a situation where you were apologizing and it was too generic, which is the opposite. Of course, in that case, it's a different context because it's, you're working on a job and you don't really have control over who has to apologize for what. Really the yeah, audience, you, like when it comes down yeah. to it at the end of the day, the audience for that content writer is the client. It doesn't matter what the client yeah, actually right. says, right? Because they think they know their audience. And so if they're entertained by what you wrote and they're educated by what you wrote, great job. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing. So like with that, so I thought of, she does talk about, I think on page 153, like how there's this, the attention economy where people are trying to always grab your attention and send you all these context-free statements and so on. It's like a, in industrial farms, like where you have lots of corn that's growing like really straight, but isn't touching other pieces of corn. And there's producing faithfully without ever touching no time to reach out and form horizontal networks of attention and support. And then of course, you know, these sort of like angry outbursts and things are only make it worse because when I was talking about dog piling, one time I think there was some thread on Twitter where Someone was shared some article from the New Yorker about what was it? It's either the New Yorker or the Atlantic. I always, for some reason, I always get those two confused because they're always in my mind. They're always, they're both like prestigious magazine that nevertheless has quite a few like really horrible takes. And yes, then, uh, yes and, that's and, a great way of putting that. <laughs> and then maybe New York Magazine too. So maybe it's actually a Troika. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be New York Magazine, the New Yorker, and the Atlantic. But, yeah, uh, that's completely but, uh, fair. Although New York yeah. Times is getting up there too now. But yeah, the New York Times <laughs> is borderline here because the New York Times, because especially with their op-ed page, God. oh my God. And then, but anyway, it was something like uh, some article saying the end of food or something oh, like about how right. you might have heard of this. And I actually listened to a really good episode of a uh, Death Panel, the podcast about this, where they were basically just cutting it to shreds, like saying how. It was very eugenicist and so on. And, but then I think I, I did reply to some story on it. I was like, this is like saying that I didn't think, I thought it was a little, a little, the framing was a little off and that given in a different time and place, the author probably would have been like a huge booster of Fen Fen, which was like, a, a, like mm -hmm. it was like the miracle diet drug of the nineties. Yep. And it turned out to be incredibly bad for you, yep. <laughs> like really bad. And but anyway, and then somebody replied to me with maybe consider knowing even the slightest thing about this or something. <gasps> And then I was like, I replied with, I know plenty about this. And he didn't reply to that, but I have no idea why he gave that response <sighs> because my response was not really very angry. It was just like, hey, I think this is, I think oh, this is wrong. Yeah. And then, but then it's the pile on. It's the very own reply guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's, it's almost like environmental destruction because then it's like, oh, now I don't really want to like participate. Engage, in yeah. And then, and then so I thought, 
Twitter also went really bad with like anybody who said anything about I think the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once winning a bunch of Oscars and some people were like eh I'm not really a fan it's it's fine or some people were a little more aggressive than that saying they didn't like it at all but then the pile lines were just crazy for that it was like and it's really fandom gone to the extreme and I can only think of fandom as being like a it's like a it's like the if like real community is like gold and fandom is alchemic lead or something you know trying to fool's gold something like yeah this is the thing that's supposed to be this other thing but it's really not you feel like you have some kind of link with these people but really the thing that's uniting you is superficial Mm -hmm. and it's and it encourages you to all to think the same way about that thing and so it's yeah i mean talk it's uh, it's over. It's and it's overwhelming, especially for people who don't buy into whatever the fandoms trying to sell. And then you spend them really. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Crossed over. I spend a lot of time on Tumblr, and yeah. I, I as Tumblr is the social media of fandom. <laughs> yeah. And so, the general sense that I get of the just the word fandom isn't as negative as it would be if you were like on Twitter using the word you know what i mean mm-hmm. here we are back in our context because the what platform you're using also depends on yeah kind of the it does make a big difference words but the yeah what i was thinking when you were telling that story was it just it it feels difficult to be lukewarm about anything on the internet if you're like i enjoyed everything everywhere all at once but i didn't really think that it deserved xyz oscar it was fine but i don't like people get really right. in your face about it yeah uh, but yeah they uh, want it they want everything they like to be like, the greatest thing ever yeah, yeah. and uh, which i, get I mean it. i get that being yeah not having that sort of <laughs> response i guess to just people that you don't know on the internet is a little oh yeah and also i've always thought about how like whenever somebody says it's something that literally just came out was the greatest thing of all time that's also a, a form of temporal temporal context collapse yeah. because you don't know at all i guess you i guess you could make an argument that whatever the argument you could say that i think it's great right now and that's a valid argument and then my, my assessment of it 10 years after that's also valid in 20 years they're all valid in their own ways but then whenever something that is very recent all it becomes like at one point everything everywhere all at once was like the highest rated movie in the history of rotten tomatoes wow. I think it might have. I think it might have fallen a little bit, but and of course, I think that was its own scandal. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that it had fallen down the rankings because it beat Paddington um, or whatever was the number. Yeah, one. <laughs> and then it reminded me of. I think at one point that there, I think one of the Toy Story movies had like a perfect rating on Rotten Tomatoes at one point, and then one critic like gave it like a really negative yeah. thing, and drug it down, and then of course that's also a good example because. I think now, if you were to ask people, do you think that Toy Story Four is like a perfect movie? I don't think a lot of people would probably agree with that. And so it's like you get caught. It's like a form of a, I don't know. It's it's almost like it's impulsive behavior. I just saw this is the best thing ever. And I think social media lends itself to that, right? That's the whole point. It's impulsive. Yeah. It's impulsive. It's like instantaneous. So you can just say, this is, I just saw this. There's nothing better than this ever. And then, and then of course the irony is that a lot of times the people who say that probably will never even watch it again because they're off. They're in FOMO. They're like, they have to keep flitting back. Whereas I think about like back in the 90s or even the 2000s, I used to watch the movies I liked. I would watch them all the time. I would always, I would be using like either a VHS tape or a, like a DVD and I would watch them multiple times a year. And then 
But now it's, I feel like even people who really are into things, the attention economy has gotten their hooks so far into them that they might say the best film they've ever seen is something they've only seen once. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, and I, I mean, it's tempting to get wrapped into fandoms because like I said, I think it is a, a substitute for real community. But, and I think that's basically, oh, one thing I did want to say was that, that I forgot to talk about earlier, and it's not a huge point, but when I said that online didn't really have any sort of space or uh, it didn't have any sort of spatial context to it because it's like, where is Twitter, for example? Because it's like Twitter's on my phone, Twitter's on my desktop. I can do Twitter if I'm outside. I can do it if I'm indoors. It doesn't matter. But then there was a time when the internet was conceived as belonging to a specific space. And there are a few parts of this book where she does talk about that. And I think it's on page 168. It's on the slide, I think. But it's something like, I think it's about a bulletin board system, the teletype machine. And it had, it was at a, I think it was called Community Memory. Yeah, 1972. It was a coin-operated kiosk, and it was at a very specific location. She talks about all the different things that came into this. It went through this system. It was introduced, and then it was, I think she said that there were poems, people asking for a lift to Los Angeles. Someone was trying to sell a Nubian goat. Some people posted their ASCII art and so on. So it was, but it was a very, yeah. Yeah, so it was, and it's weird to think about now because the idea of some kind of online connectivity being anchored to a very specific place like a place you had to be is like completely foreign you just like i can be i can access this no matter anywhere any anywhere anytime access is what everybody wants but uh, you know the internet was really conceived i think i would say before the 2000s one of the dominant ways of thinking of the internet was as like a space so like you think about the word cyberspace is a good example of that Um, or in the game there was a point-and-click adventure game called Space Quest VI, The Spinal Frontier, that came out in 1995, I think, or 96. And at one point late late in the game, one of the main characters has to go and find something online. So he puts on, like, this uh, headset, which is, weirdly enough, something that people are still trying to make in real life with mixed results. And it, it jacks him into the information superhighway, which is literally a string of highways that leads to this office out in the middle of the desert. And like he goes into the office and there's a bunch of filing cabinets. He goes to all the filing cabinets to find what he wants. So it's a very spatial metaphor of the internet. And uh, it's, I don't know if that was always, I'm not saying it's better than the one, but now we think of the internet more as a, a medium, something that sort of we go through instead of we go to or go toward. You can see that there used to be, and I think even Nintendo had, or and Apple both had like online services in the mid '90s, where the metaphor at play was that you were moving between different buildings. So you would log in. I think this was, I think it was called eWorld or something for Apple. Then Nintendo had a service in Japan that was for the. There was a Japan only add-on to the Super Nintendo that you connect to something called I think Satellanet or Satellaview. And the metaphors in these things, you were a person, you're moving around this town, there's different buildings. It's a way of trying to create some kind of context that would be familiar from the from the physical world. Of course, now you don't get that at all. It's all just, it's infinite abstraction. Like the Twitter, like the two-column layout. Here's the bell, and here's the envelope, and here's the house, and what do these all mean? Yeah, but then I think it's something... And then, so I guess one of the last things that I really wanted to cover was that she does have like on page 131, something similar to this, where she talks about how Altazare has this thing, like where to have a, a, succi- a successful society, you have to have constraints because you have to have forced encounters. 
So spatial proximity is, is really important. Limitations are good, in other words, whereas like the attention economy and all these social networks, limits do not, that is not, even though there are limits, as we know, there are real physical limits in terms of what's underlying their infrastructure, but in their ideology, infinite scale is, that's what they're thinking of. Limits are, and this ties back to the information overload thing, because if you do limit yourself to just, I'm only going to focus on this set of albums or this set of games or so on, and you might actually have a better time that way than if you just like, I'm just going to keep piling things into my collection and I'll never get through it all. It's like having um, an infinite to be read list because yeah. like you, I don't know. I feel like a lot of my life is just gathering books that people tell me I should read and then putting them on a list <laughs> yeah, same. and then not same. doing it. <laughs> yeah. Not doing it. Yeah. I know. So like that's one reason I never got into eBooks because I would just be like impulsively. Oh, that's me. Time, that's probably. my whole life. And yeah. then, so like basically I, that's one of, that's a limitation I basically put in myself is that I must read everything as like an actual physical book unless it doesn't exist otherwise. Well, because it's, so, it's easy, it's easier to manage that way. Right. If you have physical yeah. copies, because it's taking yeah, and up then, like, physical you actually, space. It's taking home. up physical space <laughs> and you're more conscious of that. And yeah. And then like with, even with like games, I didn't get like an analog pocket in part because a lot of people who were into it, they were like, you can just get an SD card and load every game from this system on there. And that sounds like a nightmare to me. And I would just put it in there and you'd have a decision paralysis. What do I do? What, just, do I? what do I do? And then, and then I would know in my head somehow that probably would not be quite as good as playing it on the original cartridge. It'd probably be slower somehow or something. So that would also factor into it. But the fact that I would I could just avoid decision paralysis. I'm just not going to download the ROMs. I'm just going to, if I'm going to play it, it's going to have to be on like an actual cart. So that gives you like a limitation. But I think that kind of plays into one of her biggest points here with this book. And I think we talked about this last time, but the, it's, it's worth mentioning again, is that like the point of the book or of like her way of thinking about existence is that you have to be intentional about it. So yeah. you, and you're intentionally, buying physical copies of games and physical copies yeah. of books so that you can put your attention into right. your attention wait hold up. you're putting your <laughs> yeah. attention intentionally in a certain direction and yeah and that's i think that's exactly. the biggest part of what she is trying to that's, say that, i think that is yeah that, that's really central to her whole argument is that with the attention economy in a way you're not in control because you're not you don't your intentions are becoming secondary to the things that are competing for your attention. So you actually don't even have the wherewithal to seek what you want because you're being so overwhelmed with things that are making claims on your attention. And I think, I can't remember if I talked about this last time, but I'm, I think I posted it on Mastodon about like how I found like RSS readers, like feed readers, like applications where you can put like a the RSS for XML or Atom feed for a website into the feed reader and then you can get the posts from it delivered in a chronological order. So actually it fits with a couple of things she talks about because it gives you complete temporal context and it is super intentional because say you download net newswire or like some other fancy, what I would call like a, a connoisseur's feed reader, you open it up and there's nothing there. You have to be <laughs> so intentional you, about you, what you, you put you, in. There's no recommendations. There's no, you might also, there's none of that. It's like you're on your own. And Which is hard Mastodon work. Is, it's, it's work, but it, but yeah. Yeah, and Mastodon is the same way. It's like you open up Mastodon, you're like, okay, now what? So it, it's you do have to be intentional, but then I think this book is really a testament to how difficult it can be to be intentional because she had to really 
physically move herself to different places and change the way she related to physical space to even get to to even you have this sort of intentionality because if you don't do it you'll be just you'll be swamped by things from online things from nonsense but banal content so yeah uh, i think a lot of the current i don't know discourse on like social media and how we spend our time with a lot of people say quit scrolling quit doom scrolling yeah doom scrolling get off social media etc etc (laughs) and i think that this book is a is a it's an interesting take on that like she gives you some actual actionable things to do instead of just saying log off (laughs) yeah i mean she actually does we didn't talk a lot about that chapter where she talks about how it's really even though this is a tough needle that she had to thread but even though you do want to get away from this tension economy it's it's not really an option to just disengage completely from the world you can't just become like a recluse who stops following everything because it's really not fair to other people to do that but then she does that entire spiel about what was it walden 2 which i can't believe i never heard of that and, <laughs> I, uh, I really did <laughs> yeah because it's actually a good case study in yeah. how things that are so sensational in time can be completely forgotten like in very short order so that's why another reason to always be skeptical this is the greatest thing ever i just saw it and it's gonna last for a million years and blah 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 like I, there was this author who won the i think he won the pulitzer prize multiple times named booth tarkington and the only reason anybody today might even know about him is that Orson Welles made like a botched adaptation of one of his novels, which is not even considered one of Orson Welles' better films. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I think it was B.F. Skinner, who is, of course, a complete weirdo. The psychologist, um, yeah, yeah. The Skinner box, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's such a book that I can imagine. Like, it reminds me of what these other books, that, like, of course, the Ayn Rand books and uh, these other, or Neil Stevenson, all these books that like the tech world is always so consumed with or and you, know, you think about it you're like wow this is fictional and if it were enacted it would be horrible yeah and i think there's a famous tweet about that actually where something like the the this something like sci-fi author i wrote the book the torment nexus as a cautionary tale of the dangers <laughs> of creating something that and the person i mean the next line is we uh, created tech the founder torment nexus. we just created the torment <laughs> nexus based on the novel the torment nexus <laughs> so it's oh. and there's so many things that are like that too and so it's that chapter she has on walden too is somebody really does try to create like basically walden too in real life it's, it doesn't work and i often think about that with a lot of tech stuff is what if we created a computer that could, you know and it's oh wow what, a, what an original idea i bet you got that from a book and of course they did it's always what if i could talk to the computer from star trek <laughs> And uh, and then of course at the same in the next breath the person will have just complete contempt for all the human hum, all the hum, humanities. So it's all, your entire project wouldn't even be possible if someone hadn't written this stupid novel. Uh, but anyway, a good idea of how sometimes art leads science. But anyway, it's uh, yeah. Oh, is this a good segue into what I my my favorite book of all time? It, there there was a portion of this book. Let me find the. I think it was at the very end of chapter four. Let me find. My, our pages are different, but oh, yeah, for me, it's page 147, but it's the very end of chapter four. She says that, let's see, she's talking about going to a creek bed with her friend and like basically how they are looking at it in two different ways. Oh yeah, I think I found it. Let's see. <clears throat> 
She says, sneaking through the midst of the banal every day is a deep weirdness, a world of flowerings, decompositions, and seepages, of a million crawling things, of spores and lacy fungal filaments, of minerals reacting and things being eaten away, all just on the other side of the chain link fence. And that isn't philosophically, like, super important or anything. I just, I was struck by the, like, the poeticism in that. And then at the very end of this, let's see, at the moment that Josh and I combined the fragments and our memories into the same body of water, the creep came not just to individual attention, but to collective attention. Like, she and Josh are remembering two different ways, but it's the same place. So they they are creating the physicality with two separate memories. Yeah. And then at the end, she says, realities are, after all, inhabitable. If we can render a new reality together with attention, perhaps we can meet each other there. And honestly, Mm -hmm. if the book had ended right there, I'm done. (laughs) That's that's pretty good. Yeah, that was a really good, Mm -hmm. succinct way of saying we need, maybe not just we need to log off, but we need to (laughs) intentionally meet each other in the real world. Yeah. yeah, we need to intentionally meet. And also the other thing was that having these different realities merging into one, because I think it's often, it's incorrect to think that everybody has the same experience of this, of the, even the same event. In fact, I would say that no two people even have the same experience of the same event. No. And and I think it's, it's part of it is, is it like the other, what I was saying earlier about how the brain works, because the fact that the brain is a very analog system and that when it tries to come up with a memory, it's not like the process of fi- coming up with a file from somewhere. It's, it's in a way, uh, it's trying to recreate the circumstances as they were at the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of that is mediated by everything that's happened since then. Uh, so then, and that's not a, at all the way like a digital device would work. So then two people could have very different experiences of the same event. And uh, because I think the notion of trying to think of the brain as like a digital thing that can be reverse engineered, I think one of the assumptions there is that there's some kind of common file format or common thing that's common across all brains. And I don't know if that's really the case. It's like they're all sort of their own bespoke creations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that they can all become come together like that, I think that's what she's saying there is, I agree with it. Yeah. It's And yeah, and it's well written too. The whole book is really, it's really well written. And I think that makes it a, it makes it easier to get through because she does make some pretty philosophically dense arguments, but it comes across as very gentle. It doesn't, it's not something that's going to really um, make you sweat trying to get through it. It's, so, it's not a, but, it's not pointing <clears throat> fingers. It's not yeah. uh, angry in any way. It's, oh no, it's not angry at all. It's yeah. just offering a different perspective. It actually feels not just pensive, but it's sad at times. She, she yeah, I was gonna say sad was lament- was the way that lamentable, lamented, whatever the adjective lamentable or, uh, of that word. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I would describe sadness as something that is very prevalent throughout the book. But at the same time, there's there's optimism. She, like you said, she does give a lot of actionable things to do, so that makes a big difference. Yeah, uh, and but let's see the section that I was just at, and now I have to find it hold on because she says that oh here we go i would be surprised if anyone who bought this book actually wants to do nothing (laughs) i remember that yeah only the most nihilist and cold-hearted of us feels like there is nothing to be done so she says for me doing nothing means disengaging from one framework the attention economy 
not only to give myself time to think, but to do something else in another framework. And that I think is this book in a nutshell, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the title is not, it's actually an interesting philosophical Mm -hmm. point, what the word nothing means, because even ancient Greek philosophers often argue that they're really that you couldn't have an absolute nothing. There's always something that's going to fill that concept. Yeah, you're always of, doing something. Uh, you're always doing something, and saying there's nothing there is there, there's it's there's really there there is something there. It's just not maybe the thing you thought it was. And because like, the idea of there being truly nothing is philosophically difficult. I don't, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I remember written yeah something like that in with yeah the pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides had said that it was. Basically, that his argument was that the universe had always existed because if it didn't exist, what would it come out of? And then he makes that, and that got picked up by a lot of other philosophers too. I think Plato used to always go off on like how negatives were inherently ambiguous because if you said something was like, well, it's not purple, it could be a lot of things. It's not, it not purple. That? Yeah, it was an interesting, I can't remember the exact dialogue where that appears, but yeah, it's, it's something else, especially considering they didn't have any. They didn't really have astronomy as we know it, of course. They were making these big pronouncements about like how the universe worked. I think that's a human thing, right? We're making lots oh, of yeah. big pronouncements all the time, I think. Yeah, all the time, yeah. So that's just what happens. It feels like our discussion is coming to an organic. Yeah, I think so. I think we really, we really have wrapped it up pretty well there. And there's some parts of the book we haven't gone into as much, but I think we've hit the big points. I think uh, I would recommend that people read this. I think it's easily digestible. I didn't feel like I was laboring <laughs> while oh, I was... No. It's a pretty quick read. Yeah, if you really dedicated yourself to it, you could probably finish it in a couple, couple days. days. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very straightforward. She does have a lot of citations, and she does get into... She did her research, that's yeah. for sure. She did her research, yeah. I mean, but it's you know, elegantly presented, and I think she has a new book that's coming out soon, too, but I can't remember the title. But yeah, it's... Have to give that a read. I it's good stuff. I, yeah. I enjoy her perspective. Yeah, and she's also as an artist. I think she brings in a unique perspective to it as well. Like with the, she talks a lot about some different types of art throughout the book that are like an art that was made out of a lot of small pictures and made a larger picture. And if you looked at it a certain way, from a distance it looked like just like a pretty ordinary landscape. But then you got up close to it and you saw there were all these other details and. Mm-hmm case study and how paying attention makes a huge amount of difference yeah yeah okay i thank you for listening Uh, thanks for listening made it all the way to the end here thanks for listening we (laughs) i enjoy doing these discussions oh yeah me too i let's see i guess we could do our regular plugs here at the end yeah yeah this subs the if you're consuming this podcast somewhere other than the main website, it's hosted at two solid, which is to solid.substack.com. So all the podcast episodes, as well as all of the newsletter episodes, are all there, including and, lots of blog content and longer form pieces oh yeah. by Alex. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I'm always trying to work on new stuff there. So yeah, they all it's all free. I mean, you can. You pay to subscribe if you want to, but it, right now it doesn't get you anything extra, and I don't know if it ever will. It's all free stuff for now, and then yeah, the podcast is there. You might have a better time listening to the podcast in like a an app like Apple Podcasts or Overcast or anything like that. Those are all really great. I think they're better than listening to it on the website. Or personally. you could download something like Net Newswire and put the subject into your RSS feed reader. 
You can put the Substack in there as well. Yeah. In fact, you can put any Substack in a feed reader if you just put the main URL and then put, what is it, a forward slash feed. So whatever the wet Substack is named, forward slash feed, that gets you an RSS feed of all the content. that have your very own personal podcast <laughs> application yeah. if you just do this podcast <laughs> in that yeah. app. <laughs> yeah. You can, uh, yeah, the podcasts are actually all RSS on the back end. It's pretty, in fact, that's probably the main way most people use RSS these days is listening to podcasts because uh, that's how they're delivered. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you think um, you're not using an RSS feed, you are, you're listening to this you podcast. You are, you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you can't get away from it. <laughs> so my plugs are, I wrote a book. Oh yeah. You can read it now. It's on Amazon. You can find all of the links and the copies to that on my website at lizmakestuff.com. It's a fantasy novel. It was, it's a labor of love. <laughs> yeah. I've got a, I've got a hard copy and I'm getting around to it. It's, yes. it's called Blood Made yes. and it's by L.M. Fern. That's so. my pen name. Yeah. And yeah, I never came up with a good pen name for myself. And that's a pretty good one. Thank you. And yeah, so we'll, maybe on a future episode, we can talk about the the book, uh, the process of creating. Oh, I'd content. actually love to do uh, that. I'm in the <laughs> yeah. middle of a blog post on that right now. So yeah. Yeah, so we should that. do that for an upcoming episode. Yeah. So, oh boy. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening again, okay. and check us out next time. Yep. Thanks for listening. <laughs>